This episode is brought to you in part by The Good Book Company, publisher of Does the Bible Affirm Same-Sex Relationships? by Rebecca McLaughlin, a book that examines 10 claims about the Bible's view of sexuality. Go to thegoodbook.com sexualethics to receive 25% off with code CT25. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. You know, good and camp. You're listening to the and campaigns church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend Christopher Butler. Uh, I'm gonna start this episode off, unfortunately, on a solemn note. Uh, want to make sure that we send our prayers, uh, uh, our prayers going out to the five people that were killed in Colorado Springs. I think there were about 25 people. Uh, injured in addition to that, uh, pursuant to a shooter uh, who went into an LGBT club and and shot uh, some people and unfortunately um, murdered some people. Um, as I've seen as of late, and this may change by the time you hear it, the motive is not known. And so I think it's under it's important not to uh, assume the motive. Uh, once we hear the motive, then, you know, we can add commentary based on what we know that motive to be. But that has not been released yet. And so I do think it's important not to go too far in, in making any assumptions. We know that this is wicked. We know that this is evil. And we know that there are some families and communities out there that that need prayer. Um, never is it the answer to treat any community this way, whatever the reason might be. And so our prayers go out to them and would ask you all to pray as well. Any thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you hit it right on the head, but there's certainly, uh, there's never any justification uh, for that kind of behavior. And there's never a reason to, to limit our compassion uh, and concern for uh, a community, uh, for all the families that have been impacted by this. Um, you know, we, we know all too well here in the city where I live that it's not just the people who are killed, uh, but so many victims who survive, uh, and then all the families and communities who are connected to those people are impacted by this. So I encourage us just to to pray and and uh, continue to keep that community in our thoughts and prayers. Yeah, and, and we know just in America in general, in a whole variety of communities, violence is I don't know if you want to call it a curse. I don't I don't know exactly what it is, how we would say it in spiritual terms, but it's something that is a major part of the brokenness of America right now. Um, whether you're in my city, whether you're in your city, whether you're in other places where we're seeing these mass shootings, we have a major problem with violence. And so addition, in addition to praying uh, re- in regard to this incident, I would ask us all just to pray about uh, violence. Um, now, I will say this too, uh, Chris, by coincidence, we are talking about another issue that uh that involves the LGBTQ community uh, within this podcast. That is just a coincidence. They're not really connected. Uh, but I did, did want to say that just so people know uh, and that co- that connection isn't um, made erroneously. So anything else, Chris, you good? Yeah, no, we're ready to get into it. All right, guys. Well, you know how we usually start off. I always want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Also want to give a shout out to those folks who give individually. We get a lot of individual uh, uh, contributions to what we're trying to do, and we greatly appreciate it. If you want to be someone who supports the show, you can go to patreon.com slash church politics to support us. Also, we just started putting our um, our episodes up on YouTube. Uh, need to get those numbers up. So that's just getting started. But check us out on YouTube. Uh, I have a face for radio, but hopefully it's not too bad to keep you away from our YouTube channel so we can kind of get those numbers up uh, as well. As usual, you know what it is. Grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. 
So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib uh, he had taken uh, out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. This is that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. That's Genesis chapter two, verses twenty one through twenty five. Jesus said, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Matthew 19, chapter 19, verses four through six. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. That is Hebrews chapter 13, verse four. Marriage is sacred. Marriage is something that God has already established as good. And the more our presumptuous modern minds tinker with it, the more we form it in the image of our own desires, the more we impart our brokenness into the concept of marriage, the more we defile it. Whether or not we like it, uh, whether it feels good or not, definitions matter, Chris. Institutions matter. God's design is good and truthful, even if it's contrary to our proclivities and appetites. According to the word of God, as faithfully interpreted, marriage is between one man and one woman, with the goal being that it would be permanent, monogamous, and exclusive. The Bible says so, and Jesus confirms it. And if we're honest, nature and general revelation reveal this as well. There's only two types of people that can come together to create life. That's a man and a woman. And we have to understand that there's purpose and meaning behind that truth. This is why it's not just Christians, but so many different societies and so many different civilizations throughout history that have come to this same conclusion. And we're talking about societies with no connection, with no interaction. There are a lot of other couplings that can be good within their purpose. But they're simply not marriages. Now, we know that healthy children can grow in other types of families, but that doesn't make them ideal. Some marriages fail and sometimes they need to end. And that's part of our fallen state. We don't want anybody in a abusive relationship and feel like they're forced to stay there. That's on us. But God still said marriage is good, even if everyone won't enter into a marriage. We know that there's nothing wrong. There's many uh, folks in the Bible who were single. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I think we do have to observe, Chris, is that every intense romantic union is not a marriage. When we obscure that truth, we blind society to something very profound and something we all need to realize. Now, I want to acknowledge that part of the framing of that conversation comes from a book written by Sharif Gurges, uh, Ryan Anderson uh, and, and others about what marriage is, about that definition. And I think while we, we disagree with, with Ryan Anderson on, on many things, and he's probably going to disagree with some of the things we're, we're going to say in this podcast. I do think when it comes to the definition of marriage and the framing of it, uh, that he's done, a, he's done something that's been helpful for Christians, who many of whom knew what God said, but were unable to articulate it because they, they, they accepted it as given. And so I do want to acknowledge that, that that framework comes from there. Now, if marriage is anything other than a union between a man and a woman, then I think we have to realize that there's no reason that it needs to be just two people. Uh, here in Atlanta, one of our council people is in a thruple. 
If it's not just about a man and a woman, then it could be any number of people. The two, that number two comes from the practical and scientifically verifiable reality that one man and one woman create a child. Right. Three people cannot come together and all be a part of creating a child. That union creates a natural system of support for the child with two different people that provide different support based on their sex and the attributes that come along with that, along with the biological things that come from those two as well, that the, that the child would like to be knowledgeable about as they get older. And it could be helpful where it comes to health and many other things. I think, Chris, and you, you I'm guessing you probably agree with me on this. I think that we often overestimate how much we can socially reconstruct the reality of that that family system of that natural family. Right? Um, now, somebody might say, well, there are some male and female marriages that can't produce children. We know that it's true. We all know people that go through that. Um, and sometimes, you know, we there is physical brokenness within us and within our relationships. But that example doesn't defy God's design. It's a union that still fits God's model. Okay. Uh, so I don't think that does anything to take away from what God meant marriage to be. Our modern minds don't often have the wisdom to see how changing God ordained timeless institutions can lead to brokenness, can lead to injustice, can lead to death. We often don't have the moral imagination to see how human flourishing sometimes comes from self-denial, rejection and rejection of self-indulgence. I see so many Christian influencers now saying anything that hurts somebody, God would never do anything that that makes somebody feel bad. And that that's just not biblical. People might feel bad in the moment for a lot of different reasons. But the Bible never says that sometimes that's not the case or sometimes things won't go as we want. And that means that a person or that God loves us less. Too often our thinking is short term. Too often our, our thinking is based on immediate gratification. And a lot of times, Chris, our thinking is adult centered. We don't see how our well intended social constructs or replacements for marriage can devastate children at the end of the day. And really, when we're talking about victims, that's one of the biggest victims, along with society in general, of these redefinitions. All right. Now, I'm about to pass it to you, but I just want to say this one thing, Chris, and I, hopefully you hit on it, too. In this day and age, it would be much easier for the and campaign to affirm same sex marriage. And just, you know, same sex uh, attraction and relationships in general. We could save ourselves a lot of criticism and 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 frankly, a lot of rejection. Uh, there are certain circles that Chris and I will never be invited back into because we maintain the historic Christian sexual and family ethic. We would probably be eligible for a lot of a lot more grants, uh, a lot more speaking engagements and other opportunities if we would just step away from that conviction. At this point. There's no real advantage in the public square, especially when it when you're in a progressive space like Atlanta or Chicago. There's no advantage to maintaining a traditional view of marriage from a professional standpoint. It's not rewarded. So why do we do it? Is it because we're bigots that hate gay people and just want them to suffer? I mean, you, you can't really pull the whole well, you guys just haven't been. Uh, exposed to it before. I mean, we live in places where we're surrounded by it and we get that. Um, and I think the assumption that people hold this point of view just because they're bigoted is wrong. Now, I will say that certain Christians have made that seem to be the case for them. But that that assumption, I think, is wrong in general. That's not why that's not why a lot of people hold that conviction, um, even though you hear that narrative quite a bit coming from the left. Um, the truth of the matter is that LGBTQ people are our family members, our friends, co-workers, pew mates. And there are people in the and campaign who are same sex attracted while maintaining the historic Christian sexual ethic. And we love them. They know we love them. We don't treat them any differently than anybody else. I've talked about my my history before before marriage with with sexual immorality. I don't have a place to be 
condemning anybody on these things. What we're doing is articulating what the Bible says and the convictions that we think Christians have to maintain. We are committed to sacrificing ourselves for people in that community, for, to advocating for people in that community. But that doesn't make gay marriage marriage. That doesn't change the true definition of marriage, nor does it change the true institution. Chris, can you speak into this a little bit yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think you said, uh, you know, much of what is to be said. I would probably start uh, sort of where you were ending off uh, with this idea that when you hear uh, somebody like me or Justin uh, talk about marriage, this is not, you know, coming from somebody who's, you know, as far as I know, like we, we don't have anything coming to us for doing so, uh, except for difficulty. You know, like you said, and certainly in political spaces around here, there's no benefit, you know, even socially and culturally, there's no benefit. I, I would even argue, you know, less and less even is there benefit even within the church to really stepping forward and actually discussing uh, the issue of marriage and affirming a, a biblical and historical ethic when it comes to marriage and the family. So the reason I do this is not because uh, is because, you know, something good is going to happen to me uh, for it from in a, in a natural sense. But it's also not because I'm some kind of a glutton for punishment. Like I'm, I'm not uh, we don't raise our hands on this, you know, to stand out or show people how, you know, how how rigorously we can, you know, hold up the scriptures or to thump our Bibles. Uh, I think that the reason we talk about this is the same reason that motivates us to do the podcast week after week, motivates us to do the end campaign, uh, is this idea uh, that if we contend for these, for this truth in the public space, uh, it will ultimately accrue both to the benefit of the church and to the benefit of the society, both of which I think I can speak for both Justin and I. Uh, we love both of those things very deeply. We love the church uh, and we love this culture very, very much. We love the people who, who we have in our immediate lives and our churches. Uh, but but there's something in us that that loves the society, like that what we are and what we can be together. We have a passion for that. Uh, and I think that is what motivates us. I can't speak for anybody else, uh, but I think this is what motivates us to really step forward and have, to have, have a conversation about this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about it uh, a little bit more in the next block when we talk about legislation, uh, but we, we need more skillful communicators on this issue who can really contend for this on the basis of those two things, you know, a, a devotion to, uh, to the church and a devotion to the society, because I think that there is a benefit that accrues to the society when we do things the way uh, God has prescribed it. And it's not just because I want everybody to be a Christian. Now, my cards are on the table. I'm, a, uh, I'm an evangelical preacher. I want everybody to be a Christian. But the the things I do in, in, uh, in politics are not designed uh, simply to just go and force everybody to be a Christian. I think that there uh, is merit to the idea. I like to say that I just don't exclude Christian and biblical ideas from the public discourse. Because I think more often than not, if you just allow the ideas to enter and be discussed, you'll find that there are some really strong ideas. Uh, and so that's sort of the the place that I come from when I think about just uh, setting up the topic. And, and we'll talk more specifically about a, a piece of legislation. But I think that it's really important just to hold the definition that you laid out real well, uh, Justin, but also understand that the reason we do this, and I hope that folks who listen to this podcast will adopt some of this rationale for why it is important um, to have this conversation. Um, it's not necessarily because everybody's going to love you for it, because we're in a situation culturally where that's not really going to be the case right now. But it's also not to, you know, to kind of like showboat or thumb your nose at people or be mean to same sex attracted folks. Like this is not that's not the goal. This is all about no, how to be, be martyrs either. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're not trying to be martyrs. Be martyrs. They, they get off on being hated by society. Yeah. 
Uh, that may end up being the case, but I, we don't get anything from that. I mean, we have families, we have kids, we have careers that that, you know, those situations aren't necessarily helped by the position that we're taking. But yeah, I think it's important to leave it alone. We, we, we would. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's important. Exactly. I think it's important to take this position because the truth matters. Yeah. And even as somebody who, you know, we could say, well, we take this position on our heart and just don't say anything about it. We can't do that. I think the and campaign is, is worthless is that if that's the kind of position that we take. And so we're about love and truth. We will love uh, folks in that community. And we will also tell the truth to them and folks who aren't in that heterosexual folks uh, who, who have issues in that regard. That's that's something that we're committed uh, to doing because we find it to be right. And we think that is the cost of discipleship. We don't think we can hide those convictions and we don't think that the consequences can dictate who we are and what we say in these spaces. Anything else on that particular piece, Chris? I uh, know. I mean, I think that that's uh that's really it. I mean, hold, hold fast to the, to that, to this definition and this reality. Um, and you don't, and, and not for, like you said, like it's not for the sake of martyrdom. Uh, it's also not for the sake of being celebrated. It is, uh, it's for the sake of the truth and what the truth can actually yield uh, for, for our society. Yeah. And I, and I'll tell you this before I was, before we started the and campaign, there was a period where I was silent on this stuff because I, I didn't want to face the consequences professionally and, and so on. And part of the starting the and campaign and going all in was the decision to hand that to God and let him take care of it. And that's a decision many of us have to make on a day to day, not just the and campaign. And I hope you're making a courageous decision in that regard. So the reason that we're talking of is like, where did this come from? Why are we talking about the definition of marriage? Well, there's a reason for that, because there's some legislation that is out uh, that that is just about that. It, it is about uh, it's called the Respect uh, for Marriage Act, and it deals with many of the things that, that we were just talking about. OK, um, this Respect for Marriage Act legislation basically codifies the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision regarding same sex marriage. And what it does is it uh, mandates the federal government to recognize same sex marriages. Um, now, the original version, Chris, that came out of the House of Representatives didn't have any religious liberty protections, uh, meaning faith organizations could and would be punished for not recognizing same sex marriages. That can include Christian hospitals, uh, Jewish um, uh, organizations. Uh, Muslim schools and so on. If, if you didn't, if you know, if you didn't change your sexual ethic, um, then you could be punished. Now, while the and campaign doesn't support redefining marriage, we just explained that. And therefore, we could not endorse this bill at all. So we did not endorse it, uh, uh, even though you may have heard that on, on social media. That's not true. Uh, we did work with Orthodox Jewish groups, uh, seven day Adventist, Mormons and even LGBT groups. Uh, to get the Senate to add religious liberty protections to this bill. All right. We thought that was the thought that was important. I've already stated why the end campaign maintains the historic Christian sexual eth and family ethic uh, and, and why we don't support the redefinition of marriage. We, that, that is, I hope for you is clear. I want to be very clear on that. But what we do support as a general matter is civic pluralism. And so I do commend leaders like Senator Baldwin, uh, Senator Collins, for coming together to work towards fair solutions. All right. Uh, we commend leaders for doing the hard work of democracy um, and in and, and finding ways to protect people, even within disagreement. Because but for these religious liberty protections, this could have put Christian Muslim uh, other faith organizations in a very tough position. Um, and even people who wanted to codify same-sex mar marriage or codify uh, Obergefell, some of them came to the table and said, okay, that doesn't mean that we need to completely uh, wipe away religious freedom. And there's something to be said about that. We can disagree on the policy and say, well, I do commend you for having the consideration for other communities. Uh, we were encouraged to see that the amended legislation acknowledged this. And this is a direct quote. It acknowledged that diverse beliefs about the role of gender in marriage are held by reasonable and sincere people 
based on decent and honorable religious and philosophical principles. I mean, premises. That's big because when you're in popular culture, the assumption is not that people that have diverse beliefs on marriage are being reasonable, are being sincere, are being decent and are being honorable. And that's in the law. Not only is that in the law, but again, there are strong anti-retaliation. There's strong anti-retaliation language in the bill that is vital to protecting the free exercise of religion for millions of Americans who share our worldview. Now, there are some folks out there saying that these protections aren't enough. I completely disagree with that. Non-faith-based, nonprofit organizations are protected. They're not put in any worse situation based on this act than they would than they were b- before if it passes. Okay? So whereas we don't endorse the act, we do say, "Hey, thank you for adding that into it to protect people of faith." Chris, what what are your thoughts on the uh Respect for Marriage Act? Well, I'm going to uh take a little uh aside. So I'm glad we're talking about this cuz I I think this gives me a moment to um to discuss how profoundly irresponsible I thought it was uh, for Justice Clarence Thomas to write uh, in his Dobbs concurrence uh, that his view was that Obergefell was decided uh, along the same legal rationale uh, as was Roe, uh, and that he felt like the the court should revisit Obergefell uh, and uh, perhaps overturn it. Uh, And so even though Justice Alito and in the majority opinion, he expressed uh, the exact opposite view. Justice Kavanaugh and his own concurrence expressed the exact opposite view. Still, with Justice Thomas writing that, um, it just opened the door. And I thought there was no reason to do that. Uh, I still think that much of the backlash uh, that we saw in the midterms on the abortion issue was not just about abortion, uh, because when you listen to a lot of the uh, the folks who were advocating on that issue throughout the midterms, it was always attached to uh, the sort of what comes next, uh, dare I say, slippery slope uh, type of argument. Uh, you know, folks saying in commercials and on news interviews and everything, you know, they're going to come next for uh, for same-sex marriage, and then it's going to be interracial marriage. Um, and, and I thought that was always nonsense. I thought that was fear-mongering. Uh, but I do think that uh, Justice Thomas, uh, in writing that into his into his um, concurrence, gave legitimacy uh, to the nonsense. Uh, and so I think that is the genesis of, of where this law comes from. If you have uh, a member of the United States Supreme Court actually expressing uh, thoughts about overturning uh, Obergefell in the wake. I mean, not even in the wake. I mean, it was literally in the same concurrence uh, with overturning Roe. Uh, it, it did just, I mean, it, it incited uh, a, a particular base uh, and, and made them very, very um, eager uh, to get something passed. Uh, and so for anybody who who didn't want to see this type of legislation passed, you know, one of the places we have to look is to that uh, concurrent opinion, in my view. Um, you know, so once once that train uh, has sort of left the station, uh, I, like you, applaud some of the uh, some of the Republican senators who were able to get, you know, some religious liberty protection in there, because I, I mean, I, I think ultimately you know, they, they may have been able to find a way to get this thing across the finish line, even without the religious liberty protection. So I, I do applaud the work of those who got the religious liberty protections into that into that legislation. You know, so I just remind folks, you know, I, I think we have a lot of work to do uh, in this country when it comes to moral issues. Um, I think anybody who listens to this podcast or listens to either of, of us in any forum, I think you know that we believe that. I don't think that all of that work uh, can be done in the courts or in the Congress. But since this is the church politics podcast, and I do think that there's an extent to which we can uh, use civic means to to do some of this work, I think that we just have to uh, do what we were talking about in the last block. We have to stay committed uh, to these ideas. We have to really lean into our own moral imagination, our uh, policy making. Uh, creativity, uh, our capacities for 
um, for conversation uh, and and coming together with people who we do not agree with in, in order to find new and better ways to to protect to protect marriage, because even though I, I do think, and I, I won't take up you know a bunch of time trying to lay it all out right here, I do think that there are necessarily some negative results that will come from you know the affirmation and proliferation of same-sex marriage. Uh, but more important than that, uh, I think, are the benefits that accrue to the society because of strong biblical marriages. And so I think that we have to continue to think about how we can uh, use the realm of, of public policy and public life to continue to affirm and to strengthen biblical traditional marriage and all that means so that, you know, while we live in this time that it, that uh, that is not the only legal option, uh, that we make sure that it is, that is the obvious better choice. Yeah, there's a lot of work that we have to do uh, on our side of the conversation. And I, and I just think I just think it's important. Well, one thing, let me back up, actually, and say this, that the beauty of it is it wasn't just the Republican senators. It was also Democratic senators. So you had you had Baldwin, you had Cinema, you also had Collins, you had Romney, you had Tillis that came together to do this in a, in a bipartisan way. V- very important. Uh, but back. So I, I didn't want to leave that out. But before we go to the break, I just want to say this. I know a lot of Christians are cons- are becoming more and more silent on this issue. And I would warn you about substituting your judgment for God's wisdom. There's a reason that this is this is important. And even if you don't have the moral imagination to see how a society society could come apart when you pull apart what it what a family means and what marriage means, sometimes you just got to trust the word. Um, sometimes you have to be less about your ambitions, less about being in certain circles and stand up for what's right. Cause you see it happening more and more every day. Pray on it, think through it and lean on God rather than your own understanding. We will be right back on the church politics podcast. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Giveney and the right Reverend Christopher Butler. Chris, I was reading this article in Vox uh, yesterday, and it was talking about how Ticket Ticketmaster was handling the tickets for Taylor Swift's next tour. So I guess she just came up with an album, announced that she's going on tour. And of course, I guess she's the biggest pop star that there is right now, I think. Um, I'm not that into pop music, so I don't really know, but I think she's the biggest one out there. Um, and so the tickets went out. And according to Ticketmaster, there were approximately 14 million users on their site at once during the presale push. And the company sold 2.4 million presale tickets. The fans that got through because uh, apparently many did not get through, obviously. They got through via the system, and, and this is all Vox. This is a quote from Vox. They got through via a system of pre-sale codes and designated uh, purchase times. They ran into numerous malfunctions, though, and some of them uh, were had to wait hours to get their seats. Now, Ticketmaster comes out and says on November 17th that it would not even be selling tickets to the general public, uh, I guess, after this happened. And millions of devoted fans of Taylor Swift were sh- shut out of buying the tickets. So I'm sure a lot of people were extremely upset. Now, what the Vox article is saying, though, it says that on the surface, this problem looks like a classic case of Ticketmaster not being able to keep up with demand. Uh, Swift, Taylor Swift's people actually issued a statement on social media saying that they had asked Ticketmaster over and over again if they could handle the volume. And apparently... Ticketmaster indicated that they could. However, this is bigger. They're saying that this is bigger than just Ticketmaster not being able to handle the volume. Krista Brown, who is a senior policy analyst at American 
at the American Economic Liberties Project, explained to Vox that this swift failure is a symptom of a bigger problem. Now, her organization is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that focuses on dismantling monopolies and lobbies to assert antitrust laws. It's part of a coalition of organizations called Break Up Ticketmaster that seeks to undo the 2010 merger between Ticketmaster and concert promotion company Live Nation. Brown explains that the merger gave Ticketmaster a virtual monopoly over ticket buying consumers, artists like Swift and venues where they play. All right. The New York Times has reported that the U.S. Justice Department is opening up an investigation into Ticketmaster and the potential of of uh, violations of antitrust. Okay, now, just so we understand what a monopoly is, according to Investopedia, a monopoly is a market structure where a single seller or producer assumes a dominant position in an industry or a sector. Monopolies are discouraged in free market economies as they stifle competition and limit substitutes for consumers. In the United States, antitrust legislation is in place to restrict monopolies, ensuring that one business cannot control a market and use that control to exploit consumers. Now, we see why we don't want monopolies. Let's look at what this Vox article says about this monopoly that Ticketmaster has. It says, thanks to a web of exclusive contracts with artists and venues, consumers usually have to go through Ticketmaster to see the artists they want to see. Artists face limits, too, as many arenas and stadiums have Ticketmaster uh, exclusivity deals, wherein playing a venue means using Ticketmaster as their vendor. Usually a company doesn't just go around upsetting its base with web crashes, absurd ticket pricing and fees, and being shut out of tickets. Consumer loyalty matters to most corporations, but Ticketmaster's marketplace dominance allows it to continue on even if it's delivering a horrible experience. So here's what's happening here. When you have competition, when you're in a market where you know there's a competitor where if you do bad things, you're going to you're going to uh, see consequences, that's just not happening here. So what I think what the implication is is that Ticketmaster is not upgrading their website. And so they see all these crashes and all that stuff. They really have no reason to. They have no competition. The ticket prices and fees are outrageous. And guess what? You can be mad as you want to be. But if you don't have anywhere else to go, it doesn't matter. If you don't get the tickets the way you want to get them, it doesn't matter. If an artist doesn't want to work with Ticketmaster because they don't like how they do business, it doesn't matter because you don't have another option. And in a free market, that's not supposed to happen. But, Chris, I I have for a while questioned how the folks who are dealing with antitrust in the American government are letting some of these deals go past to combine two massive corporations like Ticketmaster and Live Nation and just let it be is ridiculous. And even after this happened, they're saying that basically Ticketmaster threatens folks within the contract, you know, when they're. When they're getting these contracts and the, these exclusive contracts and making these agreements, they have so much leverage that they basically threaten the venues that if you don't do exactly what we want you to do, you'll never get in, get to this artist. That's not how our economy is supposed to work. Nobody supposed, no company is supposed to have that amount of power to where they can just take advantage and really gouge um, the consumers like that. Chris, what are your thoughts on this whole uh, Ticketmaster debacle and possible uh, monopoly? Yeah, I, I, so I, I think it's 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 definitely a monopoly. I, I, I put in my notes like uh, I love the Investopedia definition, and I would I would go further because in the United States, not only are uh, these monopolies uh, discouraged in our free market economy, thanks to good work done, um, you know, putting it into kind of like a, a, a long gilded age they are actually illegal. They are not supposed to happen. And so I think this is a uh, an enforcement issue. The, the Justice Department, you know, uh, should, should be doing something about this. I think uh, members of the Justice Department, you know, have uh, asked whether Live Nation, this is from an article, they say members of the Justice Department have asked whether Live Nation is complying with this agreement that they are under uh, from the, the 2010 
contract uh, and that the, the agency, uh, the Justice Department is growing increasingly wary about the the compliance with this monopoly and this antitrust uh, concern. Uh, but these folks are uh, a monopoly, right? The Justice Department has a definition. Uh, according to the Justice Department website, the monopoly power uh, entails both a greater and more durable power over price than the mere market power uh, and serves as an important uh screen for what they call Section 2 cases. Uh, but here's what it says. As a practical matter, a market share of greater than 50% has been necessary for courts to define the existence of monopoly power. Um, so that's the Justice Department. Live Nation controls 70% of the live entertainment market. It is by definition a monopoly and so this becomes an enforcement issue. Uh, and for me, like it always for me, like I, I like to remind myself and others that this is this is not necessarily about like the huge names like Taylor Swift, because Taylor Swift's going to be fine. Uh, it's not about most of the large venues like, you know, uh, Soldier Field and all these places that Taylor Swift is going to be uh, playing. Most of those venues are going to be fine. It's not even necessarily about the relatively well-to-do uh, Taylor Swift concert goer who comes to the website ready to spend four or $500,000 on a ticket uh, to a concert. Uh, I think that we have to remember that monopoly power and even this monopoly uh, disproportionately impacts uh, small to mid-sized businesses. Uh, you know, it's that small venue, that mid-sized venue uh, that is unable to grow uh, because of being under the thumb uh, of Ticket Ticketmaster and uh, Live Nation. It's about that that parent who works, you know, eight, 10 hours a day uh, trying to make ends meet. And then they want to spend uh, a little of that hard-earned cash to take their kids to, to the circus. Uh, and that $35 ticket ends up being $50. Uh, after Ticketmaster uh, slapped some fees on it. And this, this is like, I've literally seen this uh, this year, folks trying to go to the circus um, and, and the ticket going up almost twice uh, in price. That's, that's where this stuff really, uh, you know, the, the rubber sort of hits the road for me. And so, you know, I, I think it's, it's important to, to shout out, you know, the senators, I think it was Blumenthal and Klobuchar, uh, earlier this year, I think in March, before any of this, uh, called for the Justice Department to open an investigation uh, into Ticketmaster and Live Nation. I think it was that same uh, group that actually got the Justice Department to uh, at least uh, renew a consent decree is what, what you call it. They had the consent decree. Uh, it was going to expire. They got to extend it. Uh, but I think there needs to be enforcement on this. I think there needs to be enforcement across these monopolies because I think about regular people more than like the big, exciting things that are happening. But, you know, we have corporations uh, right now, like corporate monopolies, controlling what we eat and how we engage on social media and where we live and how much access we have to healthcare and to medicine, uh, and even our access to live entertainment. Uh, and, and more and more, it just seems like we're, uh, we find ourselves in a world where basic needs and simple joys of life are being sucked out of the life of, uh, you know, sort of regular everyday working class folks and being preserved uh, for an, a sort of ever- exclusive, ever more exclusive, I should say, group of, of social and economic elites. And that is the definition of, a, of, of, of the gilded age. You don't want to be in a, uh, a second phase of that if we're not already in a second gilded age. Uh, and so I, I think that we really need on this issue and across the board on monopoly, um, aggressive enforcement, um, and I hope that we can maintain, if we get to aggressive enforcement in this administration, which I do think uh, this administration has been more aggressive than previous administrations um, on the issue of, of monopoly uh, and corporate control, I, I, I hope that we can maintain some continuity across um, administrations uh, when it comes to this, because I don't think this is a four or an eight year fight. Uh, and so you need some continuity through administrations and, and It'll certainly be, for me, one of the things that I'm uh, paying attention to pretty high on the list when I'm thinking about, you know, who to support, who to work for, and ultimately who to vote for. 
Yeah, and this, and this is one of the reasons that I think a lot of Americans, a lot of consumers don't feel protected. They don't feel like government works because it does seem, and I'll speak for even from, it does seem like a lot of these folks who are in those regulatory positions are just bought off. And whether it's what they put in our food, um, all this genetically modified stuff and whatever, uh, whether it's how much, you know, what um, mergers they allow to happen, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily always best based on the law and that they're missing opportunities to regulate well. We know you can overregulate, you can underregulate. There's there's opportunities to re- regulate well that I think uh, they are missing. Just imagine if you're a small venue, the amount of negotiating power that Ticketmaster has over that that negotiating process. That's not the way that's supposed to be. There should be other options. There should be some level of threat to Ticketmaster that if they do bad business, that it's going to come back to get them. But instead, even after making an agreement with the government, they're still threatening folks and using their power in ways that allows them to exploit uh, venues, allows them to exploit uh, consumers and so on. Uh, One question I have for you, though, Chris, is did you get a ticket to the Taylor Swift concert? Were you one of those lucky 2.4 million? I think it was. Yeah, no, I was not. You know, I, I have my, uh, my my Capital One Quicksilver card, so I, I did get a a uh, a code uh, to uh, to get the ticket. But you know, I uh, I wasn't ready to put down that bread to go. To yeah, the you missed you missed your opportunity opportunity of a lifetime, man. You missed it. I'm sure my homie out there, Pooh Bear, who's a big Taylor Swift fan, uh, got his tickets. I hope some of you other folks got it got it as well. Uh, we will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Well, uh, Nancy Pelosi is 82 years old, uh, and she's been a U.S. congresswoman from California, San Francisco area, since 1987. She's been the top uh, House Democrat for two decades. She's put in a lot of work. But last week, she announced that she'll be stepping down from her congressional leadership role, um, Although she is going to maintain, although she's going to remain to be a member of Congress. So she's she's leaving the role of party leadership, maintaining her seat in Congress and probably get an opportunity to train up whoever her successor may be. Now, we know that this comes after what wasn't a red wave, but Chris was enough to give Republicans uh, to, to, to allow them to take back the House. And so they did end up taking back the House in the midterms, not by the numbers that we initially expected, but enough to move forward. And it looks like uh, New York Representative Hakeem Jeffries is likely to become Pelosi's successor and may have the benefit of getting some training as much as he may want, you know, may want or need it uh, while she's still there, uh, but but not in leadership. So that's a, a big opportunity for him. As you know, Chris, Nancy Pelosi was a major political operator. Uh, one of the main reasons she was in that position is she just l- learned to raise a lot of money. And she came in on the front end where party leaders who raised a lot of money began spreading that money out to other people in the party, which allowed them to gain influence. She has a really interesting story. And if anybody's interested in understanding more of her story within politics, you should uh, listen to counterpoints, which is a um, we always talk about breaking points and breaking points has added 
a show called Counterpoints. And last week they kind of talk about Nancy Pelosi coming up in politics. Now, she seems like the consummate West Coast liberal. But the truth of the matter is, I think she's from Baltimore and that her family was actually uh, political bosses in Baltimore. So her father and her grandfather really ran the show in Baltimore. She kind of brought some of that party boss mentality to the West Coast, but also be, you know, got into that West Coast culture as, as well. Now, anybody who's been listening to this show knows that I have a lot of issues with Nancy Pelosi, whether it be about the sanctity of life or a number of other issues. But it's hard to deny that she was an effective leader for the Democratic Party, that she held folks together, that when she wanted to get something done within the party, people were forced to listen. And these were people who might not want to listen to what she'd have to say because they were just on another wing of the party. Uh, so it's going to be a difference. I think uh, Hakeem Jeffries uh, has some some pretty big shoes to fill. Apparently, a lot of people think he's up for it if he's going to be the next person stepping in. Apparently, he has that that fundraising acumen as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how this goes. Chris, what are your initial thoughts about uh, Nancy Pelosi stepping down and, and the new leadership in general and the dynamic that might be brought uh, by these these new uh, occurrences? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing uh, I have to do is uh, just step back and and pay some some mad respect to uh, Nancy Pelosi. Um, and I know you know some people might not want to hear me do that, and I I do. I uh, have a lot of disagreements with Nancy Pelosi. I probably disagree with Nancy Pelosi on uh, on most uh, issues of policy because I think on cultural issues she's going to be uh, way way to the uh, to the left of me, and I think that she's fairly uh, corporate inclined when it comes to economic policy. She's um, neoliberal, right? She's a neoliberal, yeah, yeah classic neoliberal. So uh, probably got a lot of disagreements on policy, but just as a uh, an observer and a a a lover of the uh, the art of of politics, you will be hard pressed to find uh, a a person who uh, is just a more consummate political operator. Um, and and even though she does come from uh, Baltimore political bosses, Nancy Pelosi is somebody who I've been fascinated by for a long time. Uh, so I've you know I looked into. Uh, her kind of like background and her career f- a lot. You know, she comes from, you know, that kind of Baltimore uh, party boss background. She she does go out to California, but uh, she does spend time while she was she was civically involved. Uh, she she didn't go straight into electoral work. Right. She she raised children and did a lot of other kind of like civic leadership things. Some of that that fundraising chops that she brought to Congress, she developed that actually raising money uh, for for folks when she was not an elected official, uh, just as a private citizen. And so uh, I think she also is an example, again, not pursuing the same policy ends that I would pursue, but she's just an example of how you can uh, in different phases of your life uh, and from different places have profound impact. Uh, she uh, she she got to be party whip and eventually party leader just because of her ability to to raise that money to to actually work hard and have influence inside the caucus before she was really before she was able to leadership. She's just a very, very uh, hard worker, constantly visiting people, calling folks, building those relationships, um, studying what was happening in the Congress. Uh, and so just a, an incredible leader. Uh, because that, I think that is going to be very hard to replicate that. One of the things that I see and and kind of like the handpicked uh, leadership that's coming behind the outgoing crew, I, I do wonder if they waited too long. And then I wonder if it's the right strategy to try to replicate it, because it's, it's, you're just going to be hard pressed to ask somebody uh, to uh, to to do that again. Uh, I think that when I think about succession, in general, I think you have to to think about what is what needs to be preserved for sure. Uh, but you also have to try to think about the future and what's coming, uh, and and what's going to be needed there. And I, I don't think that you'll be able to replicate uh, the magic. Uh, King Jeffries is not coming into a situation where most of the members don't know how to raise money. Well, maybe he is coming into that kind of situation. But there are there are more ways to raise money. I would say. Uh, than that. There are other voices and wings uh, inside of the party. So uh, 
we'll see how it goes. But I, I just really hope they don't try to replicate Nancy Pelosi because I think that that I think that just be a huge mistake. I I, I think that that's going to be a, a hard act to repeat. You got to find yeah, the it, thing. Yeah, it should be interesting because one of the dynamics that's going on with with Jeffries is he's been really hard on the progressive wing of the party. I mean, I mean, a tax, raising money to get rid of them, raising money so that they get beat in their primaries. Now, when asked about it, you know, on on the Sunday shows and things like that, he was very gracious and said, hey, we're one big tent and we love the blue dogs, which are there any blue dogs left? Um, We love from the blue dogs to the progressives. Everybody, we're one big family. And that sounds good. And maybe that lasts uh, for this honeymoon period. But when things have to get done, when when people don't want to do the things that you want to do, is his uh, it seeming penchant to, to kind of attack some of these folks? Is that going to come back up? What impact will that actually have on the party? And maybe he does say, you know, I have to handle it differently. I was an attack dog to some extent then. And who knows who was kind of behind that. And now I have to be a leader. And that that caused me to to take a different posture, but it's certainly something that's going to be looked at. Uh, there's, it's probably something that uh, progressives in the party are, are are paying attention to to see how he, he'll handle them. Uh, but it's not an easy job, and and you know, starting off the job in the minority uh, with some realignments going on in the party again, I think, but for Trump, some of the 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 fissures, some of the divisions in the Democratic Party would be a lot more pronounced, and. Maybe luckily he's coming back for that, but maybe it doesn't work and they end up having to really deal with some of the issues that are kind of covered up by everybody joining together to say, let's fight fight against Trump. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I actually think that uh, that that Donald Trump's presence and on the political scene for the last decade almost now is something that, that will ultimately accrue to the benefit of of the right, because I, I think that is not just inside of either party, but our our whole political structure is experiencing uh, a realignment. And I think that the, the Democratic Party has has basically been insulated from that. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm actually of the opinion right now that if, if things don't change and you see a, a more of a disruption, that the future of the right is actually going to dictate the future of our politics a little bit more uh, than the future of, of the left, especially because you have Donald Trump and, and before him, the Tea Party. And it just seems like even though I, I don't identify on everything with progressives. You know, I I'm I probably identify with progressive members of the Democratic caucus on a on a lot of economic policy issues. And and it seems to me that dissidents on the right are a lot more willing to like really push back, be heard and stir the pot than are dissidents on the left. I'm talking about within elected leadership and as members of Congress. You know, like even even this leadership election is like the the whole progressive caucus just faded to the back. Like like they didn't have any 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 stake in the game. Like they didn't get a single leadership position. Uh, so, you know, I, I I think that that the the Trump effect uh, long term it probably benefited Democrats in the in the in these most recent midterms. But I think over the long term, Democrats are going to have to wrestle with this political realignment and what it'll mean. Uh, you know, to to their party. Otherwise, I think the, the right might have a better opportunity. Not that they're doing very much on that side to take advantage of it right now, uh, but they may have a better opportunity uh, to take advantage of the broader realignment that's taking place. Yeah, but, well, uh, you know, the the Republicans do have to answer their own questions about. You know, there's kind of like a populist. Some people are calling it just a vibe because it hasn't really showed up in in policy. There's, so there's a policy. There's a uh, a, a vibe of kind of being more populist in the Republican Party, but it hasn't really shown up in how that'll come in policy. So you see certain things from Marco Rubio, uh, Holly, folks like that. How are they going to deal with that? Are they going to be able to capitalize on some of those things? Do they want to capitalize on, on any of that? Questions that need to be answered. And when it comes to Hakeem Jeffries, again, that's another kind of, and I don't say these as, as pejoratives, but just descriptive, uh, another very much kind of neoliberal establishment uh, Democrat uh, that is that is you know run his career much in that way. Many things I disagree with the the neo neoliberals on, uh, but we will just have to see how he does. Uh, I will be praying for him. I'll be praying for the Republican leadership because there's a lot of work that has to get done that we need to do together. Uh, 
But that's all we got for today. I hope y'all enjoyed this conversation. Again, we started off with a very tough subject, uh, running into another tough subject that, again, wasn't necessarily related uh, in how we're handling it in the podcast. But we just want all y'all to, to know out there, you know, when motives are known, when we we understand what happened with with these uh, this tragic circumstance, it calls for prayer and it may call for policy or something like that. Uh, so be prepared to to love to 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 lament and and mourn uh, with the morning. Be prepared to to show love to, to folks and communities that may be hurting in a real way, not just in rhetoric, but indeed. Uh, as always, AnCamp, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. Uh, there's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, AnCamp, I'll let you. Oh, Lord, I say kingdom, kingdom.